Riches from the East by Father Bede Griffiths. Presentation 3, The Personal God and the Absolute Godhead. I'm really going to talk about, you could define more generally as Vedanta and Christian faith. And it's this challenge which the Vedanta makes to our Christian faith. And as you know, the Vedanta spread all over the world, and we have to situate our Christian faith in relation to Vedanta. Now, what exactly is Vedanta? It means the end of the Vedas, and was originally used at the Upanishads as the last stage of the Vedas, about 600 BC. And then, rather later, about 300 BC, came the Bhagavad Gita, which is not strictly Vedic, it belongs to the Smriti, the revelation Smriti, what is heard, is the Vedic revelation, and then you have the long period after that of Smriti, what is remembered, or rather tradition. And strictly, Bhagavad Gita belongs to that tradition, but it was included with the Upanishads as the base of Vedanta. And then thirdly, about 100 BC probably, were the Vedanta Sutras or the Brahma Sutras of Padarayana, which are a more sort of philosophical summary of the Vedantic doctrine. And those are called the triple foundation of the, of the Vedanta. And all the doctors of Vedanta, we'll be coming to them in time, commented on these three texts, They're the basic texts. I've brought along these translations. This is the Upanishads, translated by Mascaro. He was a Catholic, actually, who was professor of Sanskrit in Cambridge. And he did both the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita in the Penguin Classics, very easily available, I suppose, in America, certainly in England. And he writes a very good introduction and a very readable translation. It's a little free, and scholars may object to it at some points, but it's the most readable translation. In our prayer in the ashram, we always read from this text. So for those who are interested, on a very small scale, two small books, you have the essence of Vedanta in those two small volumes in good English. So um, Vedanta begins with the Upanishads and then moves on to the um, Bhagavad Gita and then summarizes, as it were, in the Vedanta Sutras. And that constitutes Vedanta, and that is the philosophy of Hinduism, do you see? And today, there's been a tremendous revival of Vedanta. Swami Vivekananda was one of the great propagators of it all over the world. And they have their Vedanta societies and Vedanta groups in all parts of the world. And to the Hindu, Vedanta is the supreme wisdom. And he sees all religions and all philosophies in the light of Vedanta. And you must always remember, for him, Christianity is just a small Western branch of this tradition. He accepts it quite willingly, Christian Western form of Vedanta, but the central one and the supreme is for him the Hindu Vedanta. And you have to remember that in India and in the world, perhaps, we're in the middle of a Hindu Renaissance. You see, in the 19th century, Hinduism was at a very low ebb. 
Then Ramakrishna came, 1836 to 1886, and he revived Hinduism. He was a saint, and he somehow renewed all the traditional forms of Hinduism. And so he founded the Ramakrishna order, Vivekananda brought it to America, brought their message to America, and it spread all over the world. And then that has stimulated a renewal of Vedanta, a renewal of the Vedas, of Sanskrit, of the whole Hindu tradition. And we're now in the full tide of, as I say, a Hindu renaissance. And they're very much aware of the centrality of it. We have an ashram, some miles from our ashram, Hindu ashram, with a very learned pandit, Swami Chitpavananda. He's written a very good commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. We've often been invited there. And I remember once they had a map of the religions of the world. And you see you had India, and you had Hinduism, you had Buddhism, you had Jainism, you had Sikhism, and other smaller groups. And that was the center of religion. And then right away on a small wing, you had Judaism and Christianity, you see. For them, this is central. And we must remember, for us, Christianity is central. We see them on the wings, Hinduism, Buddhism. But for them, Hinduism and Vedanta is the central wisdom of the world. And they think it's absolutely universal, which I think it is. And so it presents a real challenge to us, you see. It's a marvelous doctrine which has grown up over 2,000 years, beginning with the Vedas themselves, uh, culminating in the Upanishads, then developing in the Bhagavad Gita, the Brahma Sutras, and then a whole school of philosophers from Shankara, Ramanuja, we'll go through them a little later, or right up till the 15th, 16th century. See, for 2,500 years, really, this has been a growing tradition, and now is spreading all over the world. So that is how we had to look on Vedanta and see how we relate to it as Christians. Now, the first thing is that in the Upanishads, as you remember, the search is for the ultimate reality, which is given the name of Brahman. Behind all the phenomena of the universe is the one reality, the one being, and that has this name of Brahman. And then the discovery is made, as we saw, that human consciousness, the human being, is one with Brahman. I, I am Atman Brahman, and myself is Brahman. At the depth of the uh, human person is that Atman, that self, and that is one with the spirit of the universe, the whole creation. And that was the great discovery of the Upanishads. And now a further stage is reached, come today, when the concept of the personal God evolves. And now again, you see, it's so interesting that Hinduism always approaches everything from the opposite way. For us, the personal God is primary. The God of Israel is very personal. Yahweh is a person above everything. And Jesus, when he speaks of God, speaks of him as the Father in the most personal terms. And so for us, God is primarily a person. But for the Hindu, God is primarily supreme reality, Brahman. And there's a verse in the Rig Veda which shows the Hindu understanding, which is very important for us, because we tend to think that Hinduism is polytheistic. 
many gods. And actually there are 33 million gods in Hinduism, 33 crores, uh, 330 million, I'm sorry, gods. But all these gods are simply manifestations of the one reality. And the verse in the Rig Veda, which is so famous, says, Ekam Sat Vipra Bahuda Vadanti. Ekam Sat, the one being, the wise called by many names. And the gods, the goddesses, and all other forms are names and forms of the one who has no name and no form. And that is the reality. Has no name and no form. And that is perfectly Christian. You see, ask St. Thomas Aquinas, and he will tell you God has no name. With the name of Yahweh, I am, is the nearest we can get to saying what God is, but it's only a, it's a term of analogy. God has no name and he has no form. And that is what we later came to call the Godhead. But we perceive the opposite. They start with the Godhead, with Brahman, and they come to the realization that that Brahman, that Atman, has a personal character, has a personal form. We start with the personal God and only gradually come to the concept of the Godhead. Actually, you know, the word Godhead does occur in the New Testament. I remember our founder, Father Moshana, giving a very interesting lecture in India on this subject of the Godhead. It comes in the Colossians, in him which Christ dwelt the fullness of the Godhead, Theotetos, bodily. So it's in the New Testament, but it's not developed at all, and it was only the Greek fathers, and above all Dionysius the Areopagite, who developed this concept of the Godhead. And he wrote this book, The Divine Names, and this is a key work, I mentioned him before, for the understanding of the relation of Christianity to Vedanta, because Dionysius has a complete understanding, theory, of the names of God. But he understands that all these names, forms, concepts are all analogous and they're all leading towards the unnamed Godhead, you see, the supreme beyond. And so we're always focusing beyond every form of God, every concept of God, every name of God, to the ultimate reality which cannot be named, you see. And that is the focus of all religion. So the Upanishads reveal this nameless Godhead. But now, in the third century, the time of the Bhagavad Gita and the later Upanishad, the Svatāsvāta Upanishad, which he has here, this concept of the person of God begins to develop. And it's a spontaneous movement. Nobody knows quite how or where it arose. About the fourth century B.C., a movement they call the Bhagavata movement. And Bhagavan is the name of the Lord, the personal God. I'm afraid we didn't explain, we chanted that uh, chant, Om Bhagavan. And Bhagavan is the name of the Lord, the personal God, so it's addressed to the personal God. And a devotion to the personal God arose. And he was known Bhagavan, and the devotion is called Bhakti. And Bhakti is this devotional love. And the movement swept through India. As I say, nobody knows quite where it arose. And it swept all through India, and for centuries that movement has gathered force. And the ordinary Hindu thinks of God as we do in personal terms. But with the great difference that for a Hindu, God can take many forms. 
And you can worship God under the form of Brahma or of Krishna or of Shiva or of Vishnu. You can take any form of God you like. You have what is called an Ishta Devata. Devata is your God of your choice, your Ishta Devata. And each one and each family, tradition, caste it may be, has its own form of God. And they see no reason why you should only have one form. And this is the great difficulty of preaching Christianity in India that for them, there is no difficulty in believing that Jesus is God. You see, here again we have the paradox. For a Westerner, to say Jesus is God is an amazing statement, you see, a leap of faith. The child in the manger is God. But for a Hindu, that is commonplace. There's no difficulty in believing Jesus is God, and, and that Krishna is God, and Rama is God. And Rama Krishna, the saint of the 19th century, is God. They're all manifestations of the one Godhead, you see. And that is why it's so difficult to give the Christian message to a Hindu, because he's fully convinced that Jesus is God, he is a manifestation of God, and he's ready to worship him, but no more and no less than Krishna or Rama or anybody else. And a typical Ramakrishna Swami is a very good friend, a young man, came to our ashram, and he kept on saying, you see, God, whether in the form of Rama or Krishna or Buddha or Jesus or Ramakrishna or Ramana Maharshi, forms of God, you see. And it's very curious, when, when a Hindu becomes a Christian, he simply just changes the form of his God. I remember hearing one Hindu lady in a village was converted, and she was trying to explain to her Hindu neighbor what it meant. And then the Hindu neighbor really got it. I, I see your Swami. Swami is Lord. Your Swami is Jesus. Our Swami is Krishna. You've changed the name of your Swami. That is all the <laughs> So uh, that, is the, that is their belief, you see. The one is manifesting himself in all these forms. And it needn't be a human form. You see, God can manifest in a monkey. Hanuman is a form of God. He can manifest in an elephant. He can manifest in a plant, the Tulsi plant. And you can worship God under any form of his manifestation, you see. But it's very important. Hindus are not idolaters, you see. Many people think all the Old Testament prophets denouncing the many gods and the idols applies to Hinduism. But it doesn't, because they don't believe in many gods in that sense. All the gods, as I say, are names and forms of the one and all any serious Hindu knows that all his devotion goes to the one God. Incidentally, there was a survey made by a Christian group in Bangalore of the faith of the ordinary villager in Tamil Nadu and Kerala. And they asked them whether it was one God. And almost every villager said there's only one God. And then he has various murtis, various forms, avatars, manifestations. But they all say there's only one God. So that is understood. So he believes in one God manifesting in many forms, and he never worships an idol. He worships the presence of God in the idol. It's a sacramental worship. And when the idol is not consecrated, you cannot worship it. But once it's consecrated, God has become present in that idol, and you worship the presence. And when you go to a temple, you go to have the darshan of the Lord, to see the Lord in his manifestation in the idol, you see. So it's really sacramental worship. So that is the background to this worship of a personal God. 
And it comes to light, first of all, in the Svetasvata Upanishad, which is a later one, but extremely interesting. Among all these Upanishads, it's the theistic one, the one that shows the supreme reality as a personal God. And there's one verse in particular which Swami Abhishekthananda, one of our two founders, always meditated on, and to me is one of the most revealing in the Upanishads, but it says, I know that great person of the brightness of the sun beyond the darkness. Only by knowing him one goes beyond death. There is no other way to go. Vedaham etam purusham mahantam. I know that great person, this cosmic person. And now this is how the idea of the personal God evolves from the idea of the purusha, the cosmic person. And in the Vedas, there is a Purusha Shukta section on this Purusha. And it says this Purusha, this person, describes him in various ways. And then it says one-fourth of him is here on earth, three-fourths are above in heaven. He is the heavenly man, you see. His nature is heavenly, he belongs with God, but he manifests with one-fourth of him here on earth. That is the cosmic person, the cosmic Lord, you see. And he is personal. And that is how the idea of a personal God comes into the Vedanta. And this is developed in the most marvelous way in this Svetasvatara Upanishad, where it speaks uh, continually of this great Lord, this great person. I'll just give you one reading from it. His being is the source of all being, the seed of all things that in this life have their life. He is beyond time and space, and yet he is the God of forms infinite who dwells in our inmost thoughts and who is seen by those who love him. He is beyond the tree of life and time, things seen by mortal eyes, but the whole universe comes from him. He gives us truth and takes away evil, for he is the Lord of all good. Know that he is the inmost of thy soul and that he is the home of thy immortality. And then it says, may we know the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the God of gods, the God who is Lord of all. And that is pure theism, you see. And that is, it's a rare text in a way. Hinduism emphasizes much more the other aspect, the Brahman Atman. But here, in the Svetaswata Upanishad, was this breakthrough to a recognition of the one supreme personal God, the creator Lord, you see. So this is a key text for Hinduism. And then, almost at the same time, whereas the Svetasvata Upanishad, the devotion is to Shiva. And we see Shiva, this rather mysterious, rather strange, dreadful God, gradually taking the form of a God of love. It's one of the most marvelous things. And he gradually becomes more and more recognized, the God of love, until in a great Tamil poet of the early centuries, Tirumala, he, they say, the ignorant think that Shiva and love are two. They do not know that Shiva is love. Ambu in Tamil it is. Shiva is love. So they, they broke through to the idea of a personal God who is love. And in the Bhagavad Gita, it is Vishnu. As you probably know, most Hindus divide between Vaishnavites and Shaivites, those who worship Vishnu as the supreme form of God, those who worship Shiva. Today, 
they're not very strict. But in the old days, a Shaivite would never go to a Vaishnavite temple and vice versa. And still you get some rather strict Hindus belonging to a particular tradition. But generally, Vishnu and Shiva are the two forms of the Supreme Godhead. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is the form of the Godhead, and he manifests as Krishna. And Krishna is an avatara. Avatara means a descent, a descent of God. And the belief is that at all ages of the world, God descends to reveal himself and to save the world. It's a mythological concept. He appears as a fish, and then as a tortoise, and then as a boar, and then as a dwarf, and then as a hero. And then his Purnavatara, they call it, this full manifestation of God, was in Rama and Krishna. They are the supreme manifestations, supreme avatars. And here in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is the form which the supreme God takes to manifest himself and to communicate himself to man. And it takes place, as you probably know, in the midst of this battle, the war of the Mahabharata, where two armies are encamped against each other, and Arjuna, the hero, on the one side, seated in his chariot, facing the enemy, feels he cannot fight. He says, opposite me are relatives, friends, even my teacher. It's a sort of family war, and he feels he cannot fight. And he lays down his arms and says, I will not fight. And then Krishna, who is his charioteer, comes to counsel him. And the Bhagavad Gita is this counsel of Krishna to Arjuna, seated in his chariot, facing the battle. And the symbolic interpretation of that is Arjuna is the human soul, seated in the chariot of the body, and Krishna is the Lord, the spirit, the charioteer who guides your chariot, you see. Now, I think this is a little important for peace and social justice, and many may think that all this talk of Vedanta and God and so on has little to do with the affairs of this world, but I think the Bhagavad Gita has the answer to that. You see, the Bhagavad Gita is a text which has become the most popular sacred text in India. And Mahatma Gandhi took it as his guide through life. He said at every stage in his life, in all his conflicts and trials, the Bhagavad Gita was his constant support. And I feel today it really has a message for the whole world. And it is a message of how to face war. Arjuna has to face this battle. And what Krishna says to him, the very first thing he does, is to raise him above the conflict. And I think that is the answer. As long as you try to face these conflicts of capitalism and communism and Jews and Arabs and black and white people and so on, on that level, there is no answer. The conflict always remains. You have to go beyond the dualities, beyond the conflict, to discover the source in the spirit. And that is what Krishna says. Find your true self. And then in the light of that, you get the discernment, how to act. And that was Gandhi did, you see. He lived from this awareness of the spirit, and he tried to act as the spirit dictated to him to bring the freedom deliverance to India, you see. And I think that is the only way. In other words, unless there is a growth in consciousness, we cannot solve the problems of the world today. You cannot solve them on the ordinary level of consciousness. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did? He didn't try to solve any of the problems of the Roman Empire, 
political, social, economic, he left them all aside, but he opened mankind to a new consciousness. Through his death and resurrection, the spirit descended, and the church is at new humanity awakening to the consciousness of God. And I think unless today something similar takes place, we awake to a new consciousness of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the world, there's no solution to our problems. So I think this is very relevant, you see, to the problems of peace and war. Krishna comes to counsel Arjuna, and he reveals himself as the cosmic Lord, the Lord of the universe, the creator of all, and the one supreme Brahman. He is that supreme reality, you see, and it is personal. That Brahman, that Atman, is the personal God. And that is the revelation of the Gita. Before, it was somewhat impersonal, you see. Brahman is the reality behind everything. Atman is your own inner spirit, has something more personal in it, but still not fully personal. But now, that Brahman, that Atman, is seen to have a personal character and to be revealed in Krishna. And this is what Arjuna says to him, Supreme Brahman, Light Supreme, Supreme Purification, Spirit, divine, eternal, actually it's not a good translation, it's the eternal divine person, it's the Purusha, the eternal divine person, unborn God from the beginning, omnipresent Lord of all. So Krishna is revealed as the supreme reality, manifesting as a personal God, Lord of all creation, you see. And that is a text for all humanity, you see. This doesn't belong to Hinduism alone. That is why, as I say, we as Christians need to encounter this revelation. It's what I call the cosmic revelation. And we come to a distinction between the Hindu is the cosmic revelation, God's revelation in the creation and in the human heart. And Christianity is God's revelation in history. God revealing himself to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and culminating in a personal revelation in a historic situation and event. That is the Christian revelation. But this is the cosmic revelation, and Krishna is the cosmic Lord. So that is how the revelation of a personal God came to, in, to India. And at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says a marvelous thing. It sums it all up in the last book. And he says to Arjuna, Give me thy mind, give me thy heart, and thy sacrifice, and thy adoration, this is my word of promise, thou shalt in truth come to me, for thou art dear to me. And Zena, another Catholic who's written a very profound commentary on the Gita, says that this was the revelation to India that God loves man. Before man was seeking God, trying to find this Brahman, this Atman, seeks and, and devoting himself to the personal God, but now he says, you are dear to me. God loves man. That is a culmination. And all this took place probably, we can't date, two or three centuries before the incarnation in Christ. And I don't think you can separate them, you see. It's an illusion to think that all these things, things are separate here in India and in Palestine. It's all part of a cosmic whole. And God is revealing himself through all these channels. And it's deeply significant that just as the time for incarnation is coming, this revelation of the personal God in a human form is found, and that in Buddhism, with its very impersonal, negative view of nirvana, 
idea of the bodhisattva, the, who refuses to enter nirvana till all souls be saved, the idea of the compassionate Buddha comes, and the devotion to Buddha really as a personal god in, in Mahayana. So all this, you see, is related to the center of the incarnation. So now that is the um, revelation of the personal god. We now come to the great problem, what is the relation between this personal God and the ultimate Godhead. And as I say, in the Bhagavad Gita, they are, I believe, identified. But the whole of Vedanta developed in the conflict, how to interpret this, do you see? And the first great doctor is Shankara, who lived the 8th and 9th century AD. And he is the great master for most educated Hindus, a little like St. Thomas Aquinas, in fact, we had a very interesting Hindu-Christian group in Trivandrum some years ago, and it was a Sanskrit professor who was very active in it. And Father Panika wrote that book, The Unknown Christ of Hinduism. Probably many of you know it. And this professor, after our discussions on St. Thomas Aquinas and Shankara, wrote a book in Malayalam, The Unknown Shankara of Catholicism. <laughs> Shankara is the supreme doctor of Vedanta for majority. But this is raises a very grave problem because the doctrine of Shankara is very subtle and it's a mystical doctrine and one can't sort of pin it down. But the way it's normally understood, the Godhead, the Parabrahman, is the one supreme reality and all else is Maya. <laughs> 